We are going to be back in Colossians. So when our teaching pastor, Jeremy's here, uh, he's been taking us through First Peter. And about once a month, I, I come in and, and take us through a, a different portion of Scripture. And we've been working our way through Colossians. So that's where we're going to be this morning, back in chapter 1. And if you missed the last time that I was up here, it was about a month ago. Uh, that was the first part of uh, our, our looking at this final portion of chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. So this morning is going to be picking up where we left off. It's a part two. Um, so if you want, that is on the website for your reference. Uh, but I also will just kind of fill in some things for, uh, by way of reminder about the context of this passage and some of the things we covered. And that way, uh, if you missed it last time, um, you know, we'll kind of ease into the text. And, and that way, uh, we'll get situated and, and pick it up in the middle. So... In this passage, so verse 24 to 29, and if you're turning to Colossians chapter 1, it's on page 983 in those blue Bibles we provide. If you have your own, I have no idea what page it's on, but it's Colossians 1 chapter, or chapter 1, verse 24 to 29. And in this passage, essentially what we see Paul doing is he's informing the Colossians of, of his ongoing work as an apostle of Jesus Christ in the ministry of the gospel. That's what he's telling them about. And as a reminder, in the the verse leading up to this section, Paul had warned his readers that the expectation of being presented holy and blameless and above reproach before God in the end was contingent upon their persevering in the faith and in the hope of the gospel until the end. I mentioned something about God will present us. He reconciled us. He'll present us as holy and blameless and above reproach before himself. And Paul says he will do that if you continue in the faith and not shift from the hope of the gospel. So he's focusing on our part, the role that we have to play in God's work in us. So Paul wrote to the Colossians that God had reconciled them to himself by means of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross in order to, in the end, present them holy and blameless above and above reproach before him, if they continued in the faith, he says, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that they heard and learned from Epaphras, who is one of their uh, fellow uh, Colossians, which was the same gospel that had been proclaimed throughout the world, Paul says. And this is the same gospel that Paul himself was entrusted with as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Paul's warning in verse 23 to continue in the faith and not shift from the hope of the gospel was essentially a call for the Colossians to keep their confidence in Christ to the very end. That's essentially what he's calling them to do. Keep your confidence in Christ. The very thing you trusted in him for. Righteousness, reconciliation to God, remain in that. That confidence that in him, all those things are found and provided in full. So with this warning, Paul was not casting doubt on the genuineness of their faith. After all, he, he, he said, we have heard of your faith and your love for all the saints, the evidence of the fact that God is really doing a work in you. So what he was doing with this warning was really seeking to counter the appeal and persuasiveness of the false teachers who are among them. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll come across that later in this letter, but that's, that's the situation he's dealing with. And these teachers were, false teachers, were saying this, that, that the Colossians, they, they needed to supplement their faith in Christ. 
Right? You trust, trusted in Jesus, uh, but you need to supplement that, that trust, that faith, with strict religious regulations, with rituals, with practices in order to attain a higher level of spirituality. And they were teaching that this supposedly would bring them closer to God. So buying into such nonsense would be shifting away from the hope of the gospel. If you really believe that you need to embrace religious rituals and practices and all kinds of spiritual disciplines and somehow make you more spiritual, more closer to God after you've already received Christ, you're shifting away from the hope of the gospel. It would be seeing Christ and his redemptive work on the cross as insufficient in reconciling us to God. That's essentially what it is. Once we start adding works, as if you know, we need them, we're saying Christ's work was insufficient. So Paul warned the Colossians to continue in the faith and in the hope of the gospel. And after issuing this warning, Paul then sought to encourage them by letting them know that he was joyfully and sacrificially laboring in the work of the gospel for their sake. I mean, in other words, you're not on your own. We're in this together. I'm laboring for your sake. I want to I help you reach that, the end of your salvation, the goal of your salvation. So we read this, and starting in verse 24, let's read this passage. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, Paul writes, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And as we noted last time, we can see in this passage, five aspects of Paul's gospel ministry. Paul pointed to the cost of his ministry, the focus of his ministry, the task of his ministry, the goal of his ministry, and the effort of his ministry in order to encourage his readers to persevere in the faith and the hope of the gospel. So to encourage us as well. And last time we saw in verse 24 the cost of Paul's gospel ministry, which was suffering for Christ. That is... As he put it, suffering for the sake of Christ's body, the church. Then we also saw in verses 25 to 27 the focus of Paul's ministry, which was the person of Christ. Christ is the one through whom sinners are redeemed and reconciled to God and the one in whom we have the hope of glory and eternal life. He's the focus of gospel ministry. And this morning, we'll pick things up in verse 28, where we'll see the task of Paul's gospel ministry, which was the proclamation of Christ. The proclamation of Christ. Verse 28, the first part of it, Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. So unlike the false teachers in Colossae, who were proclaiming their philosophy and traditions and rituals and disciplines 
as the means to greater spirituality and closeness to God, Paul said he and his co-laborers in ministry proclaimed a person. Not works, not philosophy, not rituals. They proclaim a person. That is Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God, the one mediator between God and men. He's the way, the truth, and the life, the hope of glory, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the one by whom the world will be judged, and the one through whom the world will be saved, the one in whom and through whom and for whom are all things. We proclaim a person, and this is Jesus. Makes all the other stuff pale in comparison. And as for the false teachers, well, Paul says later in his letter that what they were peddling had no real spiritual value. Even though to some, I mean, on the outside, it might seem uh, seem to have been, uh, the teachers might have seemed to be wise and humble and disciplined in their way of life. And they're very religious. They're very disciplined. There, there might seem to be some kind of wisdom there. Like, wow, they're, they're, they're really on to something. They, they seem to have some things figured out, seem to be really spiritual. But the reality is that none of, none of their practices, none of their rituals and traditions, none of their disciplines could break the power of sin in their life. None of it could cancel the record of debt that stood against them for their sins against God. So you can be really religious, really seeking to, to please God and to you know, bring yourself to him, but guess what? You will not get there. Your sins place an insurpassable barrier between you and God. No amount of religious works can get you there. And there's no power in them, Paul says, of stopping the indulgence of our sinful desires. But, Paul says, in Christ, guess what? There is forgiveness of sins. Jesus said the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And in Christ, there is deliverance from the enslaving power of sin. There's no deliverance in rituals and traditions and works. In Christ, there's deliverance from the power of sin. Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Therefore, Paul says, we proclaim Christ. That is the central task of gospel ministry. In him, there's forgiveness of sins, cancellation of our record of debt, and in him, there is deliverance from the enslaving power of sin. This power in his name. Forgiveness, righteousness, reconciliation, resurrection, glory, and eternal life come through knowing Jesus. That's the gospel. It's not through religious devotion. It's not through spiritual disciplines. It's not through good works. And it's not through any manner of human effort. All of that is provided through Christ, and it comes by knowing him. Jesus said, and if we look to John's gospel in chapter 17, towards the end of his earthly ministry, here's what he prayed. This text says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. This is on the eve of his crucifixion. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. He's the one who has authority to give life. And this is eternal life, he says, 
that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So eternal life comes through knowing Christ. Paul says we proclaim him. And before God saved Paul, when Paul was still Saul the Pharisee, uh, he thought his keeping of the law of Moses would make him righteous before God. Until he was confronted with the person of Christ, that is. We read about that. Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the very one he was seeking to please and to walk with and to honor, he was confronted with Christ, the image of the invisible God. And it was then that his eyes were open and he could see that Christ is everything. It's not my law-keeping. Paul writes in his letter to the Philippians, if, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I mean, if we're going to boast about works in the flesh, human effort, hey, I mean, I got a lot of that. I, I have a lot of that under my belt that I could boast about, could have boasted about. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He was devoted to his Judaism. And then he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Knowing him. For this, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. It's a very tame term of what he actually said. Think of the filthiest term you could use. He counts all these efforts, human works towards righteousness as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, which was impossible, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul had abandoned human effort. He had abandoned workspace righteousness because it is an impossible task. It's unachievable. But Christ, being found in him, we have the righteousness of God. The very thing that we lacked as sinners, we lacked righteousness, God supplied it through Christ, through faith in him, and is through knowing him. Now back in our text, in verse 28 of chapter 1 in Colossians, Paul says that the central task of proclaiming Christ involves warning everyone and teaching everyone. Notice that he says everyone, regardless of ethnicity, Regardless of nationality, economic status, education, culture, you name it, the gospel is for everyone. Paul says that the, the task of proclaiming Christ involves not just teaching and thus informing people's understanding about the person of Christ, but it also involves warning and thus directing people's wills in light of the person of Christ. It's not that we need to know more of him, know more about him that we might personally know him more, but we need to be warned that we might 
act upon that knowledge of him, that our wills would be directed towards him. With regard to unbelievers, now you think gospel ministry, teaching and warning, we're proclaiming Christ. With regard to unbelievers, uh, those who are not trusting in Christ for righteousness and eternal life, so they could be professors, professors of faith, not academic professors, uh, professing faith in Christ, that doesn't necessarily mean they're truly believers, truly saved. It is those who are not trusting in Christ for righteousness, all of those who are not trusting in him for righteousness and eternal life that are not saved. They need to be taught the truth concerning Christ and warned of the coming judgment of God upon all men and that they need to repent of their personal rebellion against God and seek refuge in his son in order to be forgiven, justified, reconciled to God, and spared from eternal punishment in hell. They need to be instructed, they need to be taught and warned, not just to know the right things, but to act, repent, and believe so that you might be saved. However, so when we think of gospel ministry, well, the, the task of proclaiming Christ through warning and teaching, this task of gospel ministry, it does not end there. Later in his letter, Paul says to the Colossians, it doesn't end with the unbeliever coming to faith in Christ. So you teach and warn them, you are are evangelizing, you're doing the work of gospel ministry. That's not the end of gospel ministry once they come to faith. Because what we'll see later in this letter, Paul writes to the Colossians who, who, who are believing on Christ. And here's what he writes to them. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing and that is warning, same word, one another in all wisdom. So as those who believe on Christ, they still need to be taught and admonished in all wisdom. And we can leave that verse up here. First of all, note that according to this verse, Colossians 3.16, the task of gospel ministry is to be carried out not only by those who are leaders in the church, but by who? All Christians. All Christians. We may carry this out in different capacities and to to varying degrees, depending on our circumstances and the way the Lord has gifted us. But we are all to participate in this work together. And then second, and the main thing I want you to see here in this verse is, is that proclaiming Christ to others through warning and teaching is not limited, again, it's not limited to evangelism. The task of gospel ministry is not limited to evangelism. This verse clearly shows that the task of gospel ministry is also intended to edify the saints. This Christ-centered warning and teaching encourages us to to excel in love and purity and maturity in Christ. So when you come to faith in Christ, the work has just begun. We need to be taught to continually grow in him, to fix our, our minds on him, and to live a life worthy of him as we saw early in in this letter. And we need to be warned. We still need to be warned. We need to be warned continually against the deceitfulness of our own hearts. We need to be warned against the destructiveness of sin. That problem doesn't go away. I mean, the eternal guilt, the punishment that we deserve, the wrath of God, eternal punishment in hell, well, that was paid in full. That is, we have received full pardon. But the the destructiveness of sin, the sin is still present, 
We need to be warned against the destructiveness of sin and the folly of sin. And we need to be warned against the danger of false teachers. So we see this throughout the scriptures. Believers are warned as much as they are taught. And as we saw in verse 23, we need to be warned to continue in the faith and not shift from the hope of the gospel. We need that reminder. We need that urgent warning. There's so many temptations to supplement your faith in Christ, to stop seeing his work on your behalf as as, uh, sufficient. So how is the proclamation of Christ through warning and teaching to be carried out? And we notice also, oh, you can take it down. Back in verse 28 of chapter 1, Paul says, He and his associates do this work with all wisdom, with all wisdom. So that's how the task needs to be carried out. And with regard to this, one commentator said, Men must be warned and taught in all wisdom. We must choose the fittest seasons and use the likeliest means and accommodate ourselves to the different circumstances and capacities of those we have to do with and teach them as they are able to bear. Paul was not thoughtless or careless in how he, he, he proclaimed Christ to others. He didn't just have some kind of script memorized and just, everybody, here you go. Here's, here's Christ, I'm going to proclaim him and, and do the same thing with everyone. He, he wasn't thoughtless or careless in it. He wasn't mechanical in it. He exercised wisdom. He sought to meet people where they were, uh, where they were at, and speak to them on their level. Uh, He resolved not to give any unnecessary offense to those he ministered to, letting the only offense be the gospel itself. So he's being wise in the way he is approaching each person and proclaiming Christ. And all of this allowed him to more effectively make Christ known and turn people's thoughts to Christ. You want to be effective in gospel ministry, you need to exercise wisdom in, in how you are proclaiming Christ to others. This is how Paul approached his evangelism, and this is how he approached his ministry to the church. And we see this throughout the book of Acts and in his letters. We see the wisdom he employs and how he teaches and warns everyone and proclaims Christ. So the task of gospel ministry, being the proclamation of Christ to others by warning and teaching them in all wisdom, we have to wonder, okay, well, how would this have been an encouragement to the Colossians? Him saying this, uh, how would it be an encouragement to them and to us now to continue in the faith and not shift from the hope of the gospel? I mean, isn't that kind of, he's pointing to his example, and somehow this is encouraging them to do the very thing that he warned to continue in the faith? And I would say, here's how. When he tells them about the task of gospel ministry, it, it affirms the sufficiency of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ for righteousness and salvation and fellowship with God, because Christ alone is proclaimed. Christ alone is proclaimed. The message is not Jesus plus man-made traditions and rituals and disciplines is the way to God and eternal life. The message is not Jesus is the first step towards God and eternal life. And if you did the, the if you were in the growth group study, there was a nice illustration of viewing, uh, well, uh, illustration of what's sadly done, which is viewing him as the threshold. Well, we know we have, to, we have to go through him to get to God. 
And this idea that, that once you believe on him, now you're a Christian, you've gone through that threshold, you move on. But that's, that's not the message, that he's just the first step towards God. The message is that Jesus is God and eternal life. So believe on him, trust in him, submit to him, serve him, remain in him, and rejoice in him. He is sufficient for all these things. Now let's turn our attention to the second half of verse 28, and here we'll see the goal of gospel ministry. What's the goal? We saw the task. What's the goal? Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So the goal is maturity in Christ. Conversion is just the beginning of gospel ministry. The goal of gospel ministry is not just to see people come to faith in Christ, but to go on to maturity in Christ. The goal is not just for you to believe on him, but for you to become like him. And this requires that you grow and mature. This is God's will for every Christian. Paul wrote in his letter to the Christians in Rome that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image or likeness of his son. Christ's likeness is the goal, God's goal. For every believer. So, Paul's goal to help bring every born again Christian in his scope of ministry to maturity in Christ is consistent with God's expressed will for his children. Paul's Paul's goal is aligned with God's will, his goal. And back in Colossians, Paul, Paul wrote earlier in verse 22 that God had reconciled us by means of Christ's sacrificial death in our place for our sins in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And therefore, the goal, our goal in gospel ministry is to move toward that end, to help people move toward that end, mature in Christ. Now, obviously, God will do this in an ultimate sense, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach him, perfectly mature in Christ. He will do this in an ultimate sense because those whom he justifies, Scripture says he will also glorify The good work he began in those of us who believe, he will bring to total completion. And he will do this when Christ appears and gathers us to himself and, as Scripture says, transforms our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, imperishable and immortal, and free from the presence of indwelling sin. We will be perfected. It is at this time, at this time of this future event of Christ appearing for his church, that we will finally be like Christ in every way. But in the meantime, in the meantime, God is at work in us to first transform what? Not these lowly bodies, but these lowly minds and hearts. That's what he is at work in us in the meantime to transform our hearts and minds to be like Christ. And he is working through his people and through the ministry of his word to bring this about. So the task of gospel ministry is to minister the the word of God concerning Christ to lead those who believe to maturity in Christ. 
and we mature as we are warned and taught in accordance with the scriptures to walk as Jesus walked. In the spirit, in love, in humility, in wisdom, in righteousness, and in purity, doing the will of the Father. And by this we honor and please our Lord who redeemed us with his own blood and gave us eternal life so that, what, we would live for him. We mature as we are transformed by the renewal of our minds. And it's by the word of God that our minds are renewed. Paul had written in his letter to Timothy, in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, he, he said, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture is the means by which our minds are renewed and we are transformed. And then Paul says in chapter 4 of his letter to the Christians at Ephesus that the Lord's goal for his church, for us, is that we, through the teaching of his word, would be equipped for the work of ministry and built up, he says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So when we are born again, we are infants in Christ. When you're born again, you are spiritually an infant in Christ. That's how we start out. But we are to grow up in Christ so that we do not remain immature as children are. Ignorant, naive, gullible, and self-centered. I think that describes children, right? We're not to remain as children are. One example that we have in Scripture of an immature lot of Christians was the church at Corinth. Their immaturity resulted in a lot of problems. It's a long letter, and there's a lot of problems Paul's addressing in this church. They were an immature church. Their immature, immaturity resulted, their spiritual immaturity resulted in a lot of problems in their local fellowship. It led them to be divisive. It led them to be selfish and disorderly and carnal and emotionally driven and earthly-minded and lacking in love. Spiritual immaturity. And Paul said in his letter to them, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are all still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So he couldn't address them as spiritual, but as people of the flesh, as infants of Christ, they weren't growing in Christ. They weren't maturing in him. They were still babies. Smelly diapers, messy, whiny, 
babies. They hadn't gone up to maturity. 1 Corinthians is filled with Paul's warning and teaching of the immature Corinthian church in all wisdom so that they might spiritually grow up, that they might press on to maturity in Christ. That's what he's trying to get them to do. And one thing he urges them to do is to follow his example. And here's the thing. Children don't just need good instruction, do they? It's not just instruction they need. They need, in addition to good instruction in order to mature, they need, they need good examples. They need someone who's giving them wise instruction, but also modeling that for them. Not do as I say, not as I do. It's do as I say and watch what I do. Learn from me. So Paul wrote the Corinthians, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. And then later in the letter he writes, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now back in chapter 1 of Colossians, let's look at verse 29. Here we'll see the effort of gospel ministry. Paul writes in in verse 29, for this... And that is to this end, referring to the goal of presenting everyone mature in Christ. For this, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And the Greek word translated as toil means to work to the point of exhaustion. To work to the point of exhaustion. And the word translated as struggling refers to struggling as one would do in an athletic competition. It's actually the the word we get our word agony from. But in the Greek, it refers to this struggling or fighting as an athlete would do in competition. And do athletes struggle and fight in order to get last place? Or to get the, uh, oh, what is it, the, the... what, what, what do a lot of kids get these days? Because they don't, they don't do great, but they want to give them something. Participation award? Yeah, I was trying to find the term, you know. Something ridiculous like that to feed their egos and self-esteem, which is ungodly anyway. So that's what those terms mean. So we think, what do all good athletes do when they compete? Well, they push themselves, what, to their absolute limit. They exert all their effort towards achieving their goal of victory. So what Paul was saying was that he was working to his absolute limits, to the best of his abilities and to the point of exhaustion in order to help those to whom he ministered mature in Christ. What does that say anyway about the Colossians then? It says that they are valuable to him. He cares about them. He loves them. They are worth the effort. He wants to see them mature in Christ, and he's expending himself to help them reach that goal. And I like what one commentator says about this. He points out, no one can successfully serve Jesus Christ without working hard. You want to serve the Lord, you got to work hard. I mean, if you want to serve him successfully, we can go through the the motions and do Christian activity and, and say we're serving the Lord, but, I mean, serving the Lord is hard work. And he says Christian leaders or lazy pastors, lazy Christian leaders, lazy laymen will never fulfill the ministry the Lord has called them to. 
He's not called us all to the exact same tasks, but we are all part of this same work of gospel ministry in various degrees and capacities. But if we're lazy in that work, we'll never, never fulfill it. We'll never be successful. Gospel ministry is hard and exhausting work because it is people work. Gospel work is people work. I mean, we, you know, we, we do stuff to set up the room and everything, and we, we do things like that to, to help us gather together. That, that's work. But we're talking about, again, ministering to people to see them mature in Christ, ministering to their hearts and minds. That's what makes gospel ministries hard and exhausting work. It's because it's people work. And guess what? People are sinful, messy, and difficult. Now, Paul said that he was continually working to the point of exhaustion and giving everything he could to the ministry of the gospel in people's lives. And when we read his letters and and the book of Acts, we can clearly see that he experienced many hardships and difficulties for the sake of this ministry. Not just circumstances, but the actual people he was trying to minister to. So how is it that he never burned out? When we look at Paul, how did he never burn out? How how is it that he never got to the point of being too exhausted to continue in this work? Why didn't he burn out? What do you think? What do we see in verse 29? What does he say? Here's our answer. Don't miss this. Paul wrote, so we're not just focused on, I am toiling I am pushing myself to the limit in, this, in the gospel ministry to serve the Lord. And then he, he adds this, with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Whose energy? Yeah, Christ. Jesus' energy. So the reason Paul didn't burn out was because the energy with which he faithfully continued in the exhausting work of gospel ministry was supplied by Christ. The effort of gospel ministry is ultimately empowerment by Christ. Paul knew this, and that is why he labored as he did. One commentator says, the, the more we labor in the work of the Lord, the greater measures of help we may expect from him in it. So again, it's a matter of faith, trusting that in this work of gospel ministry and ministering to others to see them mature in Christ, these sinful people, difficult people who are called to love. What Scripture tells us is that as we seek to be about this task that Christ has called us to, guess what? He will supply us with what we need, the the energy that we need to persist in this work. And we saw this with Paul. He he wrote in, in 1 Corinthians, again, we see this, He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And he's referring to being called as an apostle. It's just by the grace of God. It's not like he deserved to be called to be an apostle. He was a persecutor of the church. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. And he's speaking of the other apostles. And again, we we look at the extent of his ministry and the the hardship uh, that he endured. But but the effectiveness and the reach and scope of his ministry. He labored 
The extent of his mystery was further than any of the other apostles. And then he says this, though. He doesn't say, so I really am like the number one apostle. No, he says, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Right? And just think about this statement. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Hopefully you can say that about yourself. If he, I mean, he gave you life, he redeemed you, to call you not to live any longer for yourself, but for him, who died for you, who reconciled you to God, who called you to his kingdom and righteousness. Was that grace in vain? Or could you say, on the contrary, he saved me and therefore I labor for him. I serve him. So as a final thought, although none of us were called by Christ to be apostles like Paul was, again, we're looking at his example. We're not called to be apostles. There are no apostles today. Here's the reality, though. We were all called by Christ to share in this work of gospel ministry. It's not just for vocational pastors, the elders in in churches, or really gifted people, or really intelligent people. It's for every born-again believer, everyone who's in Christ. Every Christian is called to share in this work of gospel ministry. You know what the word fellowship means? It means sharing, participation. What do you think that sharing is in? It's in a number of things, right? And in our eternal life, in our righteousness from God that we've received through faith in Christ, this fellowship that we have, but it's also a sharing in the work of gospel ministry, a partnering in that work. And not only are we to be encouraged by Paul's example in this passage in Colossians, we are also to imitate it. Again, not to be apostles, but to look to his example, the way he expended himself, the way he was solely focused on serving Christ and being about his business, we are to imitate Paul's example. And the more we fully participate in gospel ministry, think about this, the more we will ourselves advance towards the goal of gospel ministry, which is our maturity in Christ. So as we, if we want to be mature in Christ or grow up in Christ, part of, part of our growth will come from picking up the task of gospel ministry and seeking uh, to partner in that to do the work of gospel ministry, to help others grow in Christ. And as we help others grow and focus not on ourselves but on their benefit, this is love, the more we will mature in Christ, the more we will be like him. So there we have it. We had the task of gospel ministry and the goal. We're called to this as well. And the effort that Christ supplies us, he gives us everything we need to be about this mission he has called us to as the church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you for this local fellowship, Lord, for the work of your spirits in us that can be truly said of this church. Not only only do we believe on Christ, that we we love one another. And Lord, I, I, I pray that we would all be able to say that your grace toward us was not in vain, and that our priorities would be aligned rightly with your priorities for us. And help us, not only as a church, but each and every one of us individually who are, who are trusting in your Son, help us to 
mature in him. Help us to grow up in him in every way that we might be more effective in serving him and reproducing our faith in others. Lord Jesus, help, help us to keep you as our, our central focus in life, knowing that we were bought with a price by your precious blood, that we are not our own. We are yours. Help us to be about the work you have called us to as a church, to make disciples and be faithful in, in the spheres of influence that we have, to be faithful in our homes, our workplaces and neighborhoods, in our church, Lord, to, to seek to help others know you and grow in you. May we be faithful and expend ourselves, Lord, knowing that you will give us the strength we need to do these things and to be good stewards of the task you've entrusted us with. It's in your name we pray. Amen.